I have a problem, and I bet I'm not the only one. My wife can attest that more often than not, when I leave the house in the morning, make my goodbyes, give hugs and kisses, say the I love yous, and head down the stairs, I will very soon be popping back in the door because I have forgotten something. It must happen about 50% of the time, and it drives me crazy every time. Every time I forget something, I debate whether or not it's worth it to go back. And usually I head back in grumbling all the way because I like to think of myself as having it all together. This silly instance is reflective of a much larger problem that I have. I hate being wrong. I hate making mistakes. I really hate being corrected by others. And I bet I'm not the only one. None of us like being told that we've messed up, especially when we're convinced we're in the right or when we've got a real stake in being right. I get frustrated when I find out I'm wrong about inane things like physics or history because deep down, I want to be smart and I want to be seen as smart. How do we respond when we find out we're wrong? How do we respond when we find out we're wrong in serious areas of our life? How ought we respond when sin is revealed in our lives? And even more importantly, what needs to happen to make it right? This morning we're looking at yet another instance of Israel being shown plainly where they have strayed and hearing yet another example of how not to respond when God brings conviction. This morning's passage deals mainly with money, with giving. But behind the sin that God is addressing is the question, what if it were us? How do we respond to God's conviction? And if we truly want to be obedient to God, as Israel does not, how do we return to where we ought to be? God, we need your spirit to speak to us this morning. It is only through the power of your spirit that we can know your word for us and that we can have hearts to receive it. We invite you now to come. In Jesus' name, amen. We come this morning to the fifth of the six disputations that the Lord has with Israel through his prophet Malachi. Today's passage deals with the people of Israel robbing God in their tithes and offerings, or rather in their lack of or insufficient tithes and offerings. This parallels with the issue of offering polluted sacrifices that the Lord condemns in chapter 1. I realize now that we didn't read the text. <laughs> Let's read it now. Not me. Don't correct me. Hush. It's almost like the Lord is still working on me. <laughs> Take it off your hands, Suzanne. Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. 
But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Pray that God adds his blessing to the reading of his word aloud this morning. Israel is robbing God in their tithes and offerings, or rather in their lack of or insufficient tithes and offerings. This parallels somewhat with the issue of offering polluted sacrifice that the Lord condemns in chapter 1. We're going to cover some of the same ground today that we did a few weeks ago in dealing with the second disputation. We will look at what the Lord deserves from us. Recall that in chapter 1, verse 14, God declares plainly, I am a great king. Israel's forgetfulness of this fact goes beyond simply the animals that they were bringing to the altar. It is present here in chapter 3 as well. And we'll also see the continuing problem that lies behind all of Israel's presenting issues. Behind their disobedience concerning tithes and contribution is a skewed view of God a view that expects the Lord Almighty to act according to man's standards. Ultimately, the problem is that Israel has lost their faith in God. Before we get into today's text, let's walk through Malachi's message so far. In his bringing to light the improper worship of the nation, Malachi has condemned Israel's forgetfulness of God's love. I have loved you. He has condemned their contemptuous offerings, their faithfulness towards each other in their marriage vows and other contracts, and their bitter complaints regarding what they see as God's injustice in their circumstances. And God has fully rebuked Israel in each case, saying that his love is displayed through his choosing Israel from among the nations declaring that he is a great king who is worthy to be feared and worshipped rightly, revealing that he is a witness over the covenants of man, and in essence, he is the keeper of all the blessings and curses that those covenants contain, and proclaiming that the Lord's justice is coming, a refining justice that no sin can withstand. Now we come to chapter 3, verse 6. God has just stated that in bringing his refining justice, no evil will go unnoticed. He then states, for I, the Lord, do not change. Then he makes an abrupt shift. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Recall from the end of last week's message that the delay of God's judgment is not cruel or corrupt. It is merciful. In verse 7, God makes it plain that as it stands, Israel is not above or apart from, but rather in league with all those against whom God will be a witness. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. They ought to be thankful 
that the day of judgment has not yet come. Then God completes the shift from judgment to mercy. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. We need to take a minute and look at this transition. It is anchored immovably in the opening statement. I, the Lord, do not change. Do we see God as unchanging? It's not always an easy thing to do. It's foreign to us, even if we don't recognize it. And scripture itself uses language that seems to indicate God changing. God is spoken of as relenting or regretting. We just read last week of God being weary, which indicated a change in his ability to endure the blasphemous complaints of Israel. There's a very important distinction to be made in how we understand God when we read these seemingly contradictory statements. God is a person. And to the best of my knowledge, in every instance of Scripture, describing God as having changed in some way, it has to do with the relationship that he has with his creation and his actions toward them. So we might say that God changes interpersonally. But what we must understand is this. God does not change intrinsically. What makes God God does not change. Consider what the psalmist says of God in Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Or speaking of God the Son, take a look at this very clear and perhaps familiar statement from Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The things that make God God do not change. We change all the time. Just as God's word introduces us to his unchanging nature, it is also very plain in showing that our nature is extremely changeable. It often does this in its contrast with God, but perhaps even more dramatically, Scripture makes it plain just how much we can change in describing the work of salvation in us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Not an old jalopy with a new coat of paint. Not a ship that just needed a little course correction. We are nothing of what we were before. That is how very different our nature is from that of God. It is also something we should keep in mind for later. Now I say all this why? Because, as I said before, God's unchanging nature is the anchor for transitioning into today's passage. Looking at the beginning verses of chapter 3... God's righteousness and perfect standard is the assurance that his coming judgment will be sure, will be total and complete, and will be completely and utterly just. And it is also God's compassion, his grace, and his love that are behind the reassurance given at the end of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you. Israel may have turned from graven images and child sacrifice, but they are still not where they need to be. And God is once again being patient with them. 
offering them a chance to change their ways. But Israel's response mirrors all their previous pushback to God's word for them. How shall we return? Keep in mind, this is not a narrative that we are reading. God, through Malachi, is speaking both his and Israel's part of the dialogue. But what this reveals is what has already occurred. God is showing Israel through this somewhat satirical back and forth that he has already offered reconciliation. And Israel has, in essence, already thrown it back in his face. How shall we return, or from the King James, wherein shall we return, is not a sincere query. It is not a humble request for instructions. God's law was very clear on how the people were to restore right relationship with him after sinning. Israel is being defensive here. They are responding with this sort of passive-aggressive feigned innocence. Well, sure, we'd love to return, God, but could you just point out what we did wrong? We're not seeing it. Parents, you are likely familiar with this type of response. You know the look on your child's face as they stand next to their crayon masterpiece all over the living room wall. It's good, right? No, no issue here. Or perhaps this sounds familiar. You walk into the living room as weeping and wailing fills the house. One child on the floor in a heap. The other standing over them holding a wiffle bat. <laughs> and what's the response when you ask Babe Ruth what they did? I didn't do anything. What? Well, Israel's a little less direct here, but at its heart, this is the same response. There's no willingness to self-examine, only to self-justify. Just as we've seen in each disputation thus far, Israel truly believes, as they look at their difficult circumstances, that they are the wronged party here. But God is patiently revealing that this is not the case at all. In verse 8, God tells Israel exactly where things stand. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Now Israel's defensiveness gets much more direct. How have we robbed you? What? Nonsense. And God's explanation is just as direct. In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. God has again laid out plainly how Israel has transgressed their covenant with God. They have failed to give the required tithes and contributions. A tithe simply means a tenth share. In the law given to Moses and the people in the desert, there were three different tithes prescribed. And while there is some scholarly debate about the scheduling of these tithes and whether they overlapped or not, the purpose and the requirement for these tithes, year after year, are perfectly clear. One tithe was the feast tithe. It was to be set aside to be eaten before the Lord during the festivals that were also laid out in God's law, to be eaten in the presence of the Lord. The second was the tithe for the Levites, whose job it was to administer Israel's worship throughout the land. This tribe had no allotment of their own in the promised land, nowhere to grow crops or raise herds their lives were devoted to the service of worship. And so they depended on the tithe to sustain them. The third tithe was for the poor, for the widow and the orphan, and for the traveler from afar. Israel is failing to meet the requirements of these tithes. 
And once again, this is not an instance of inconsistent effort or slipping up. Just as Israel's wearisome complaints are systemic, so is this theft. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Something in this society, this culture, this religious going through the motions has hardened them as a whole. They have decided corporately that they're not going to give. They're robbing God. All through Malachi, Israel's sense of self is clear. They see themselves as downtrodden, as oppressed, as unjustly punished. And while they hold on to many of the practices of their religion and use those practices as their justification for setting themselves apart from other nations, we see here that they are in fact treating God as unworthy of their devotion. Through withholding their tithes, they are saying, God, you don't deserve my generosity. You haven't earned my tenth share. What then is the judgment of God? You are cursed. There's nothing mystical about these curses as we might understand from fiction. They are simply the judgments of the Almighty God. They are consequences, whether natural or supernatural. Back to verse 5, God is a swift witness against those who do not fear him. And Israel's lack of fear has led them to brazenly rob God. God is also by implication in verse 5, the keeper of the blessings and curses of the covenant. He is the one who brings judgment. And the people of Israel, so sure that they are just victims during this period, crying their crocodile tears, have in fact been the cause of all the hardship that they are enduring. There are two purposes to the blessings and curses of the covenant at play here. The first is part of the grand purpose for which God chose Israel, to represent him to the world. Israel is called to be holy, to be set apart through their obedience to God's law. And in blessing their obedience and cursing their disobedience, the testimony of Israel would be made plain to the world. When Israel looked different from the other nations, when they were obedient, God's people would prosper, and the world would know that Israel's God was great. When Israel looked the same as the other nations around them in their disobedience, and they received judgment, no one would have any reason to think that Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, approved of the sin of men. The second purpose of the blessings and cursing is an identical testimony for Israel itself. Israel had it laid out plainly. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. You can see just how gracious God is being here in Malachi. Israel does not need a revelation from God to understand their circumstances. They can look back to Achan and the defeat at Ai to see how seriously God takes sin among the people. They can remember King Saul who had the kingship taken from his family and given to another due to disobedience. And far more telling and far more recent than this, they can recall their own exile. That not many years ago, there was effectively no nation of Israel at all in the land because the people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
God could have let Israel's entire history be their fair warning. But he patiently tells them once more just why they have reached the point they are at. Not only this, but he reminds them what obedience would look like for them. Verse 10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The tone of Malachi has been pretty heavy. It's not all sunshine and butterflies here either. But look what God has just offered. Look what God has just laid before his rebellious people. Who but God could be so patient? Who but God could bear with so much willful ignorance and rebellious self-justification and still offer grace? He lays out just how the people might return, responding to their defensiveness as if it were sincerity, not excusing Israel, but inviting them to change and doing so with a challenge that at its heart is quite incredible. God invites Israel to test him. In all of Scripture, this is the only time man is invited to test God. In every other instance, testing God is a sign of unbelief. But here, in setting, their tithe, setting apart their tithes and giving of their increase, Israel would be performing an act of faith. Giving is an act of worship. That's why we consciously and intentionally make it a part of the Sunday morning service. And God has already made it plain in chapter 1 just how very much he deserves his people's worship. He says, my name will be feared among the nations. Think of the strength that a nation possesses. Think of Babylon during this time, ruling almost the entire known world. Think of America today. We spend more on defense than every other first world nation combined. The God who makes nations fear his name deserves worship. This is about worship, and God invites them to test him. Now, the fact that God deserves worship is not absent here in chapter 3, but God's invitation to test him shows another facet of the relationship that he seeks to establish with his people. The prospect of blessing. Israel is being greedy with their money. They're being stingy. Perhaps far from giving their tenth share to the poor, they feel that they all are the poor and should be receiving aid from others. God is saying, see if I can't take care of you. Lay aside your greed and open your tight fist and see if I will not outdo you in generosity. God is standing ready to work miraculously on Israel's behalf if they will only turn from their sin. Israel has such a backward sense of what their relationship with God is founded on. Malachi is revealing an entitlement that is fairly astonishing. Even from Israel's wretched condition, they want to sit in judgment of God. 
They have completely tossed aside any notion that they owe God anything and have wholly forgotten that the Lord of hosts, powerful and awesome, has always desired to act as a loving father toward them. That's the relationship God desires. That's the relationship that he offers. This begs the question, how might we be guilty of the same transgression as Israel? This is where it gets uncomfortable for some. Money is an issue that is often closer to our hearts than we would like to admit. Sure, let's shake our heads at Israel and agree, boy, they shouldn't have done that. But when the focus shifts our way, it's not so fun. What does our handling of money say about us? How is our giving of our tithes and offerings, or our not giving of our tithes and offerings, an expression of what we truly believe? The practical purpose of our offerings now is really no different than it was in Malachi's time. Our offerings allow us to gather for worship and fellowship in the way that we do. To have Sunday morning worship and Bible study materials and spaghetti dinners. Our offerings support our own ministry staff and the missionaries we feel the Lord is leading us to partner with. And our offerings are given to those in need around us. What our offerings are is also the same as in Malachi's time. They are holy. Perhaps you don't think of tossing a check in the plate as a holy act. But it is. We are setting apart a portion of the money that is in our hands and saying that through the church, the body of Christ, led by the Holy Spirit, this money is to be used by God for God's purposes. Practically, how does God work through the church? By the things we do. And how are many of those things possible? Money. How do we heat this building? Support foster families or build a biblical counseling center? Tithes and offerings. If we want to keep up with the growth that has occurred among our fellowship, that we're having roundtable discussions about, how in the world do you think we're going to be able to facilitate that? Should we just sit on our hands and wait for God to magic us up a bigger sanctuary? No. It is our investment in the church that makes the church operable. This is in no way discounting the work of the Holy Spirit. It is only through the Spirit that we are a church at all. This is in no way setting aside a need to rely on God. Everything we have comes from above. But the church of God is not a passive audience to God's working. We are the workers of the harvest. And the money we give is a key contribution that we make to that work. We need your dollar. We don't need your dollar, but we need your dollar. The second aspect of our tithes and offerings is relational. What does our giving mean in terms of our relationship to God? We've already seen it in God's words to Israel. Our giving is an expression of what we believe about God. Do we believe God deserves a portion of our income? Or on a deeper level, to whom does the money we possess truly belong? 
if we properly understand our place in God's creation as God's creation and God's place as the supreme Lord of all, should not the question rather be what portion are we allowed to deny God? Will man rob God? We fret about losing out on 10% of the paycheck and want to have big arguments about how the tithe is Old Testament. Therefore, we shouldn't have to feel obligated. I've got bad news for you. The New Testament is both clearer and more emphatic than the Old in talking about how what we possess relates to God. God deserves it all. 100%. God is the one who made us. God is the one who gave us all we have and who can take it away if he so chooses. And God has gone far beyond the physical to purchase back our very souls at great cost to himself. We are now wholly his. Remember last week, we become the sacrifice. When Romans 12 says, offer your bodies, it represents a whole self-offering. That includes money. Regardless of how much we ought to give to the church on a weekly or monthly basis, God should have the final say over 100% of the money that he has given to us to steward, to use for his purposes. We are the servants in the parable of the talents. Is there any point in that parable where the master ever says, okay, now this portion is yours to do with whatever you want? No. It all belongs to the master. And it ought to. Again, this is a hard word. But we're not sitting here looking at your finances. We're not sitting here comparing you. This is between you and God. Only he can lead you to where you need to be. Only he can convict or encourage or give you whatever you need. If you need to give more, he is faithful to let you know. And it's not about an amount. It's about where your heart is. It's about our hearts. So how might our hearts compare to Israel? Do we see in our own hearts a similar problem? Are we greedy? Are we stingy? And you might be sitting here this morning thinking, well, gosh, this is all news to me. That's okay. Now you know. This is your opportunity to see money, to see your possessions in a new way. It's a time for us all, myself included, to re-examine how we view our finances. Maybe you look at your finances and don't see how you could possibly shave something like 10% off to give to the church. God's challenge is for you too. Test him. I know there is a multitude of testimonies in this building of God's provision consistently again and again, month after month, year after year, in ways we never could have anticipated. I know in my own life, God has provided what I could not have imagined. He is faithful. See if he won't care for you as he cares for the lilies and the birds who are clothed in bright colors and fed by heaven. We often view our money through a lens of fear. What's it going to cost? Who's going to take more from me now? How will I get by? How ought we combat that fear? By trusting God. By believing that he does love us and that he will care for us. Now maybe you truly are in dire straits and can't afford something like 10%. The offering plate's not a shakedown. 
And in a minute, we'll talk about what the true motivation for our giving should be. Hint, it's not guilt. But are you even seeking to give at all? Is the desire to gain control of our finances and eliminate debt about obtaining more for ourselves? Or is it about desiring to be better positioned to serve God through our generosity? The bad news is that at some point, we have all robbed God. The whole church of us. What God deserved, we refuse to give. And this goes far beyond just money. We often withhold from God what belongs to him. Our time, our humility, our stepping out of our comfort zone, And we get defensive, just like Israel. I'm trying, God. What do you expect me to do, given the circumstances? We are very good at lying to ourselves, at digging pits, jumping into them, and then complaining to God or about God because things aren't all we thought they'd be. And we are excellent at making excuses to be tight-fisted with God. But God has not been tight-fisted with us. In all our worrying about how giving to God will make things difficult for us, do we recall what God gave for us? Do we recognize that we have been given a better deal even than Israel had? Israel was promised blessings if they obeyed. We have been given the supreme blessing of Christ with no prerequisite. Romans 5.10 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies, while we were fighting against God's lordship over us, God gave the required offering that we couldn't and that we wouldn't. It doesn't get more generous than that. And yet we act sometimes as if God is holding out on us. Consider this. What if God asked of us what we owe him? What if God asked of us what we owe him? This is what we examined last week when we read of the day of his coming. That coming day is when all the debts come due. What if on that day we were to be on the hook for all that we had taken from God that he deserves? This is why verse 2 of Malachi 3 poses the question, who can stand when he appears? Only those who have received the generous gift that God gave. Our money is not our own. Our time is not our own. Our talents, even our children, do not belong to us. But Christ is ours. Christ is ours. The spotless record of Jesus is ours to take and to own. And in light of the eternal gift that God has given us, far from parsing biblical phrases and trying to get out from any notion of a requirement of tithing 10% or giving a little more, ought we not seek and desire how we can be more generous with our money than ever. Ought we not be more willing to part with all of this fleeting, rotting, rusting, ridiculous waste of time than ever? To give it to God and let him make something worthwhile of it. God has granted us eternal life. God has lavished upon us the power and peace of his presence and made new creations of us. What else do we need? Let's be transformed in our thinking and give with gladness and shouts of joy, we get to be part of his work. We get to be part of his kingdom. 
Let's wrap up this morning with a bit of reflection. We have an opportunity to examine our hearts in the light of who God is and what he has done for us. To ponder whether we see giving of what we've been given as a holy act of worship to a great and good God or as a chore. Do we give only when it feels comfortable? Is our tithe only what's left over after we've taken care of all of our other needs and wants? Or do we give to the Lord first as he commanded Israel? Do we bring him our best or do we bring him the scraps? Looking even deeper, do we pray concerning our finances? Not just that God would give us more, but that he would have control over what we have always. That we would spend our money in his wisdom and for his glory. Is God a part of our financial planning? Or do we separate him off like somehow money is not a part of the Christian life? Most importantly, what defines our attitude toward God when it comes to money? Are we a people defined by greed or by gratitude? Does our use of money bear witness to our awareness of how much we have been given? Or to bitterness against God for his not fulfilling our desires? Do we act as though we belong to God or as those who see God as undeserving of our generosity? We've all robbed God at one point or another, and not just in our giving. What we do with our money is only one area where we seek to serve ourselves rather than God. Israel responded to God's offer of grace with defensive self-righteousness, but we should seek instead to ask sincerely, how shall we return? If our desire is to follow and obey God, we should always be looking to God to reveal our sin. And when he does convict, bad as it may feel, we can be assured that no matter how far off the mark we get, there is a way of return. God paved the way for our return by sending his son so that we can be changed, made new, so that we can walk in obedience and we too can be called blessed and live a life of delight, a life of cheerful giving, as 2 Corinthians describes. Thankful for the gift of Christ and trusting in the goodness of our God.